Welcome back to Women of AB Poly. I'm Deirdre Mitchell McLean. And I am her co host, Kathleen Smith. Do I sound especially miserable today, Deirdre? You don't. You don't. Yeah, that's you, sound, good. you sound a little, you know, relaxed, actually. Uh, let's call it relaxed. <laughs> let's, not, let's, let's call it relaxed instead of just fed right up. That yes. works. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, we'll we'll see how you feel at the end of the podcast. I'm, uh, <laughs> I'm looking forward to feeling much better. I'm looking forward to feeling inspired, having that fighting spirit ignited. Because right now I'm just kind of like, oh, I'm so over this pandemic. I'm so well, over exactly. this government. <laughs> I'm so over everything. So we need we need something to kind of reignite that for us for sure. That's right. That's right. Time to go to the well. Yes. And so we have two guests with us today, um, Janice McCocus and Michelle Robinson. And we are going to let them tell us a little bit more about themselves and where they're joining us from. Uh, Janice? Yeah. Good morning. Uh, Janice McCocus, Nitsi Gosson, Nehiawa Squonia, Onyx Kaponik Otsinia. I am coming to you from the Satellite Cree Nation in Treaty 6 territory. It is a Cree Nation that is located about an hour and a half northeast of Edmonton. Um, was raised here, born here, lived here my whole life with the exception of going to university for 12 years and coming back home and trying to implement and use the tools that I learned out in the academic world to help people to help my people specifically in the areas of indigenous rights treaty implementation indigenous nationhood resistances and first nation politics so i'm incredibly excited to be here with you ladies and i look forward to a very stimulating maybe controversial conversation (laughs) (laughs) and michelle uh, okay, Nagana Go Mekoche Chase Tokomaki. My name is Red Thunder Woman. I want to acknowledge that I'm Treaty 7 territory. Uh, this is the traditional territory of the Blackfoot, uh, the Siksika, Ganai, and Bagani. And in Treaty 7, brought in the Stony Nakoda, Wesley Chiniki, Bearspaw Nations, and the Dene from the Stutina. I always acknowledge all First Nation, Metis, Inuit status, and non as the caretakers of Turtle Island. I use she and her pronouns. And I want to acknowledge uh, the massacre that happened um, in Quebec. Today's the anniversary. So thank you so much for having me on your show. I'm really honored to be here. So thank you. And thank you both for joining us. Um, <laughs> it's us. It's we who are honored. It's we, Sincerely. Yes. <laughs> and especially because one of the... One of the reasons that I was moved to start a podcast in the very beginning is because I enjoyed listening to podcasts where I got to learn something. And we are going to take this to a whole other level today because we're going to learn a lot. And we, we discussed this beforehand. We have to start, we have to start really, really far back here to get the foundation of what we're going to talk about. Just a few years. Yeah, just a couple just of years. Go back a few years. <laughs> um, 150 years. Yeah. Just a couple. Yeah. <laughs> and so we're going to, so we're, we're, uh, so we're starting at probably the middle, but still let's start with what are treaty rights? 
Janice, do you want to start us off? Because um, I acknowledge that you have, um, you know, a, your your knowledge is beyond mine. Um, and I would rather people hear it from you first. And then I just add my, what I think is witty sidebars, but usually, <laughs> you know, um, just add to what you're saying in, in that re regards. But I think that you are, you are the most knowledgeable on this topic in this room right now. Sure. So... Um, just by way of background for people to kind of know where I'm coming from when I'm responding and speaking to these issues. I'm trained as a lawyer in Canadian law. I've also trained with elders and our people in Indigenous laws. And I think that that is a fundamental um, point and distinction that I want to make right off the bat, that there are two very separate and distinct legal systems in this country. And when treaty making took place and happened on these lands that our people refer to as Turtle Island, and we occupy now what's known as Northern Turtle Island, or what most settler people would call Canada, and in our specific region particularly would refer to as Alberta. But when treaty making happened, um, there were two parties that came to that tape to the treaty and they negotiated days. Um, indigenous peoples came with their own laws and legal systems that were fully intact for hundreds and thousands of years and utilized those laws and processes to enter into the treaty with the crowns the Queen's people, who was who were represented by um, the treaty negotiators. And in those negotiations that took place, it was the understanding that the Queen's people, representatives of the Crown, came to um, Indigenous peoples to ask for permission to settle on the lands. Some of the terms of those agreements are referred to in the written text of the treaties that we have, but Indigenous peoples would suggest and argue that a lot of the terms of those agreements were oral and they weren't captured in the written text of those agreements. And we always argue that the oral terms are just as legitimate as the written text. And in fact, our, the terms of the treaties, a lot of them were oral. So those terms of what, that, of what our relationship was to be here is contained in the negotiations of some of the journals by Alexander Morris that were written in books, but also they're kept in the minds of a lot of our elders and they're transmitted inter in generationally through stories and um, detailed accounts of what took place at each of the treaty signing areas. And I'll, I'll just, I could go on, but as a starting place, I think it's important to recognize that 
there's two nations that came to the party to negotiate terms of how they were going to live together in these lands occupied and known as Alberta and Canada, but what Indigenous peoples refer to as Turtle Island. Some of that I remember learning, mostly that, that a lot of it wasn't captured properly. I think that's a fantastic foundation. So the treaties that exist today, so you've already explained that they're not complete, which is obviously problematic, but what do the, what do the treaties do for those who did sign, for those who are covered by them? Because Alberta has three, three, six, seven, and eight. A little bit of four and a little bit of 10 as well. Over in the north? Uh, in the east. East. Oh, okay, okay. And also BC a little bit. Northern BC comes over. Well, Treaty 8 extends way Treaty 8 further. goes into BC. And, and Treaty 6 actually goes really far into Saskatchewan too. Right. Okay. Yeah. And so the treaties in, in especially these cases existed before Alberta did. What does that entail? those those treaty those treaty obligations or or agreements the treaty obligations as set out through the um, agreements that were made and you notice i'm not saying signed because i am going back to the fact that what is contained in the written text isn't the full scope of what the treaty promises and obligations are. So I um, I always make an, a point to not refer to just the written text. And so I say entered into treaty. Treaties were made because that encompasses both the written and the oral. And for Indigenous peoples, the oral is just as, if not more important, because we are oral people and that and what the whole process of treaty making it lays out the foundational relationship of the crown governments, the imperial crown, the British crown, not Canada as it is known today and not Alberta because we, our people made treaty nation to nation, the nations of the original peoples that were here with the imperial crown of what's now known Great Britain. And that is a lot of the educational pieces that get kind of lost in the rhetoric or the erasure of Indigenous people's histories. And I think that is fundamental piece of information that people need to think about and remember is that there were two nations that made treaties. Nations make treaties not a province and a state as Canada is known today, nations. And so if we go back to the, tr the three main treaty areas that exist in what is now known as Alberta today, there's Treaty 6, which is, was made in 1876 with adhesions. There's Treaty 7, 1877, and there's Treaty 8, 1899. And you notice the dates on those pre-exist the development and creation of Alberta, 1905. And so when we talk about, you know, the current politics happening here in Alberta, I just find it so 
fascinating and interesting how we go from the establishment of treaties made between nations to somehow people and parties talking about separation that, you know, with a region that didn't even exist before the development and establishment of treaties here. Mm-hmm. So, uh, like, it's just, it's a fascinating, interesting concept happening in political discourse. And I, as I watch it unfold sometimes on the news, on Twitter, social media, where have you, I just, I just think it's just a reflection of the need for education here. Mm-hmm. And it just, to me, it speaks to the mass amount of education required here. Yeah. It's like somehow this history just, you know, appeared and we're in 2020 and talking about separation from a province that you like legally, you can't separate from because these treaties bound this relationship here. Right. So, so I, I do have a question on that, Janice. Uh, I, I agree with you completely that education is important and we're not doing enough even in our public school system at the grade school level to educate our children. I, I see the, the separation rhetoric from the far right, but then I see a lot of lip service from progressives as well. And, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's common amongst progressives and I'd even say centrists and a, a minority faction of conservatives to recognize that uh, especially we here in Edmonton are on Treaty 6 land at the beginning of events or, you know, as an invocation. But I'm consistently amazed at how many of those same progressives who will just say that, we'd like to acknowledge we're on Treaty 6 land, have no idea what it means. They give lip service to it. But if you ask them, okay, now explain to me, what that means and why that acknowledgement is important. They have no idea because we're even on the left. We're not really educated on that topic and about how just saying it isn't enough. We have to honor it and acknowledge it fully because just saying it doesn't do anything to fix the I, I want to say the ongoing infringement upon those treaties. Yes, there's, exactly. there's a lot of head nodding. <laughs> yeah, and go, to go back to Deirdre's uh, question about, you know, some of the obligations and the elements of what those promises entailed, um, it it speaks to we are people agreed for the newcomers, for the settlers to live here on this land with terms and conditions. And some of those terms and conditions were that we would continue to live our way of life, Mm -hmm. which we refer to as inherent rights. And on top of those inherent rights were promises that many people call treaty rights or treaty promises. So we had everything intact that we had before the treaty was made, in addition to all of the treaty promises and those obligations that were negotiated. And those are the terms and conditions. Some of those terms and conditions um, 
the main ones that people know of are hunting, fishing, trapping, um, harvesting medicines, but there's also education, healthcare, um, and many other things that to this day, the crown has failed miserably to acknowledge and implement. And in my area of work, many First Nations across this country, not just Alberta, have consistently been making the statements that the treaty rights and the relationship are unfinished business because they have not been implemented to the full extent that they were intended to be. So there's one treaty partner that's benefiting immensely and there's another one that isn't. And that is the original peoples and nations of these territories and lands that we occupy and we live on. And I think, Kathleen, when you're talking about education and the roles of um, treaty peoples and peoples that benefit and are party to that treaty, it's incredibly important for our treaty partners, um, settlers, the people that came here, to understand what that treaty is so that they can honor, live up to, and fulfill what those obligations are. And that's why I try to do as much education as possible on treaties because, because it's the foundational relationship that guides everybody's reason for being here and to live on these lands together. And without knowing what that relationship entails, that's how we get into these, um, you know, very dangerous political rhetoric statements, very dangerous political discourses, very dangerous um, political party ideologies that create this us and them and um, division amongst the original peoples that live here, that have a responsibility to take care of the land, that have a responsibility and obligations to fulfill certain things through our own legal and lawful uh, practices, and the settler governments and the parties that occupy um, Canadian and provincial political parties and what those stand for. I just want to make a point too about the uh, education uh, really specifically because um, like first and foremost Janice I think you speak so eloquently on treaty and I'm always grateful to uh, hear you speak on these issues um, because I learn and I, I try to um, I, I, I can't go to school and learn what you're saying unfortunately. Um, I've found in po students who have poli-sci degrees or students who have graduated from law school who have law degrees, I find that um, <laughs> even in the industry that I was in, geomatics, they actually, none, nobody talks about treaty. Nobody. Nobody talks about the Indian Act. Um, so those things then end up being a major part of uh, impact on our lives, but never the settlers. So, you know, it's so insidious to not have that education, not just, you know, from grade school, but right in these academic institutions where 
you know, geomatics should be really sp explicit about, um, you know, treaty rights and Indigenous rights, but it's actually the opposite. It's complete erasure. Uh, same in law school, same in poli-sci, not acknowledging the uh, Indian Act. So it's really insidious, the lack of education and how it permeates through all of these institutions. So when you have someone who has spent $50,000 on their, you know, poli-sci law degree, believing they're ready to lead the country. They really are ready to be a great colonizer, but they're certainly not prepared to understand, you know, the law of the land and Indigenous inclusion and Indigenous rights and inherent rights. Those, that is where we really end up having a lot of those problems. And that's what I try to speak out is that systemic racism. Do you find, have either of you found that there's, um, there's a difference even between the provinces on how they approach these issues. I just from my own personal experience, having grown up in uh, BC's Fraser Valley and on the West Coast, I grew up in a part of Canada where First Nations and Indigenous culture is interwoven into our daily lives. I mean, just as an example, when you fly into Vancouver Airport and you get off that plane and walk through the airport, throughout the airport there are gorgeous pieces of Indigenous art. The moment people come into Vancouver, they are exposed to the importance of Indigenous culture for that area of Canada. And when I came from there to Alberta, it was a culture shock for me. Even as a white settler, I was, I was so taken aback by the difference in attitude towards Indigenous culture out here. It, it's, um, I don't want to say it's far more racist because I don't believe in degrees of racism. I believe there's racism. I would say that out here, it's more culturally accepted to be racist against Indigenous and First Nations persons, which was shocking for me. And I've had friends, uh, Indigenous friends come out from the West Coast to live in Alberta and not last very long here <laughs> and go right back home because of the extreme difference in the cultures just and we're neighbors i can't get over this it's our next door neighbor and yet it's it's entirely different there than it is here do we think this is a conservative thing or is it a prairie thing because it's uh, it's kind of different in manitoba too i mean i lived in manitoba for six years there's a different approach there too it's is this a regional thing why do we think it's so different from province to province in this country? Janice, you go first. <laughs> uh, so I mentioned earlier that I went to university for 12 years and each one of my degrees was spent at different provinces in this country. My first degree in Native Studies and Poli-Sci was here in Alberta. And my master's degree in Indigenous governance was in BC. And then I went to law school for my last, my third degree in Ontario. So Kathleen, when you talk about feeling the differences of the political culture, the feelings and levels of racism, I can completely, completely 100% agree with you there. Because when I went to BC, I felt like 
the temperature for acceptance of indigenous culture, peoples, and nations was much more respected and acknowledged. Like it was just there and people knew it was there. When I moved to Ontario, it was very similar. I felt like the politics were more progressive at the time. I mean, now it's a little bit different because there's a conservative political party in charge. But, and then when I came back home after um, spending, you know, years away in different provinces studying these issues, and then I came back home, I felt it was like the racism and the hate towards Indigenous peoples, like attached to me again. And it was like following me wherever I went. And that's a terrible feeling for somebody to walk, have to walk into stores, have to walk into uh, public spaces and places and places to eat to, with this feeling of, am I safe here? And, and that's something that I carry with me every day here. Like, I don't live far away from the place where those two Métis men, the hunters that went out hunting to feed their families when COVID hit, I'm like 40 minutes away from that place. And every time our family and I go out, it's wondering, okay, what's gonna happen today, you know? what am I going to get followed in the store am I going to get like a snarky racial comment thrown at me um when my dad and my son go hunting I worry about their safety we all do and how terrible having to live like that you know and to circle this conversation back to the treaty relationship remembering that the terms and conditions of the treaty to allow for settlement to take place here was based on the fact that our people would be able to continue to live their way of life, which includes being able to hunt for food to feed our families. So when instances and incidences of racial violence occur in this province, I have to think back to where does that originate from? And I think, you know, you talked about, yes, it's a provincial, um, it's a conservative province. Yes, this is the prairies. All of these different things culminating to breed this ground of hate and violent racism in this province is what I think, I think gives rise to that. And also, I think I notice a difference between rural and urban, because mm-hmm. I I live in a rural area. I live on reserve, that's surrounded by farmers, um, white farmers predominantly. Um, and then I have also lived in Edmonton, and there is a difference between the feelings of uh, hate directed to you, and racism from rural to urban, and we know living being politically inclined women and taking an interest in politics in this province that most of the rural areas are taken up by conservative seats Mm -hmm. so you go look at the ideological policy decisions that that particular party um promotes and has held and it like it's not a coincidence that 
that the level of hatred and racialized violence and experiences directed towards indigenous peoples occurs predominantly in rural areas, rural Alberta, and attach that to the narrative of uh, ownership of land. And this is my land, this is my territory. And speak, going back to what Michelle was talking about, the erasure of Indigenous stories, the erasure of Indigenous histories, and how all of these elements create this, um, you know, thing, making it uh, easy and just easier to have this hate, hateful environment directed mm-hmm. towards Indigenous peoples. And I, I don't want anyone to think that I was saying there's no racism in BC. That's not what I'm trying to say at all. I was just trying to point out that uh, there is, there's more embracing of Indigenous culture in BC. And because of that, because of that um, exposure from a very early age, people are more inclined to embrace those cultures and care about those cultures. I mean, I, I spent my formative years on a Canadian army base where the street I grew up on was Cowichan Lane. The street my friend lived on was Esquimalt. Like everything, in, even in our small town of Chilliwack, everything was about marrying Indigenous culture, not appropriating it, but marrying it into our communities. And so coming to Alberta and the time I spent in Manitoba, it was, it was shocking for me. The, the vast majority of my extended family are Cree and they live on, uh, they live in La Ranche in Saskatchewan. So I've been exposed to indigenous culture and the racism most of my life. My first husband was Métis. My eldest son is uh, Indigenous as a result of his father being Métis. It's, It's shocking to me that we have an entire province where white people still aren't getting it. And worse than that, don't want to get it. So Michelle, I'm, I'm wondering How do we go about fix, we can't, I'm not, I don't want to say fix it. How do we go about making change for the next generation? How do we ensure that they at least start to get it? Hmm. It's interesting. Right now I'm working on a project of uh, trying to get Langevin schools uh, name changed. So uh, we talk a lot about Indigenous being in STEM. I was uh, before I had my daughter. And, um, you know, I would love to put her in a science school because she wants to be a marine biologist. But the science school in Calgary is Langevin School. Langevin's the architect of Indian residential schools. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, it's a a bit of an issue. And, you know, the prime minister was able to change Langevin Block right there in Ottawa, which which is right across the street from the House of Commons, for those who don't know. And, um, you know, after a lot of pressure from... um, you know, the Indigenous community, they changed uh, Langevin Bridge to Reconciliation Bridge. And it's only one way, by the way, which I 
find hysterical. It's like the one viral TikTok I have is pointing that out. Anyway, oh, the irony. <laughs> yeah, the irony is right. So, you know, it, it, it's, um, a, it's a, a hard conversation to have um, when I was running politically, <laughs> when I ran for municipal, at the time they put up the Beaufort Towers. Those are structures on the west side of the city coming in on the number one highway. And it's actually Indian burial sites structures that were appropriated by a white man in New York that got paid a million dollars to put that up. And um, so I kept trying to talk about it, but the troll conservatives who talk about, let's defund the arts, they were the ones who got most of the voice. And, um, you know, Janice had brought up earlier some of the division that happens and, you know, what would happen is that I would talk about how inappropriate that is. And they would, uh, the city of Calgary would, would tr bring out their, you know, two Indigenous people that they pay or that they have a relationship and say, well, you know, we, we're going to make peace with it and not give any context as to how that um, relationship works, but, you know, allow them to speak for me, right, that, that bigger conversation, and I always um, find it really interesting. So when, back to Kathleen's point about the youth understanding, I think the youth get it. You know, I have three settler kids who really want to change the name Langevin. Two years ago, uh, the Calgary Board of Education got over 400 letters and the uh, chair just dismissed it and said, ah, you know, it's just, uh, you know, a pet project from a teacher. That's why this happened and that this will just blow over. And my understanding is that they also think that this Black Lives Matter movement is just going to blow over. So <laughs> Good we luck have, with that. <laughs> yeah. So we have this uh, Calgary uh, Board of Education Committee that's focusing on anti-racism. And apparently they have a wonderful report that's coming out. And um, I'm really concerned that the predominantly white um, folks that are our, our school trustees are just going to blow it over and much like uh, other reports and inquiries that have recommendations just not implement them because they have the power to not care so um i would say that you know the older generations are stuck in there i can't possibly be racist because i grew up in the northeast uh, mentality but at the end of the day the youth they get it and i, I think that there's going to be some push from them that said, I have also seen, you know, the centrists or what I call conservative light, all these conservative youth still being raised with these with this mentality. And unfortunately, they will most likely be the ones put in positions of power, much like Stephen Harper's child. So, um, you know, this fight is is ongoing. I'm standing on the shoulders of uh, generations before me, and I hope to lift up my daughter as well and, and as she moves forward in this world. So that's my hope is that it will get better. But at the right now, I have pulled my daughter from education. You know, um, there's sexism. They dismiss her because she's a woman. They dismiss her indigeneity and they dismiss her two-spiritness. So, you know, I've talked to other successful two-spirit and um, the number one thing their parents did was pull them from the, the, these schools. So, you know, in one way, I'm a proponent for education, but on the other, these institutions are so racist for our children. And um, my husband, he's been wanting us to move Alberta from Alberta, which is like he has a family plot <laughs> here, um, you know, multi-generation um, roots here. And we have to consider leaving because because of the racism. But I actually think that that's, uh, and that's a luxury white people get, not me, because I'm native, 
and this is my land. And I'm on Blackfoot territory now, but my lands are actually, they're, they're polluted from the diamond mines. So I'm like a political refugee in my own country. And um, yeah, so I, I don't know how to really say like what's next because I mean, we ultimately voted in a conservative government that purposely said, oh, this um, indigenous education, we're going to sidestep and we're going to implement old school settler colonial belief systems and elevate like we actually have a John A. McDonald statue about to be unveiled here in Calgary. I, and, I can't get over it. I can't well, get over it. Well, the activists here, we are, we're planning. And, and I, I'm sad that instead of putting my efforts towards putting my daughter in school, teaching her language, I have to put efforts into renaming Langevin School. I have to put my efforts into saying John A. McDonald was a genocidal jerk. And I can't believe you actually want to put a statue up to this fellow. We have another statue right by uh, the Bow River that uh, Mount Royal uh, University artist actually took one of those old colonial statues that didn't mean anything to anybody and reworked it to have like birds coming out of the top. So they, there's no acknowledgement of who this old colonial jerk was. It just goes straight to the art. And that was kind of an art of reconciliation. Um, but it, I really want to make the point of this is that I have a book club and we're talking about the missing children and unmarked burial sites. This is Truth and Reconciliation Commission Volume 4. And in Alberta today, we have a lot of private farmers that farm over um, Indian uh, residential school grounds. And we talk about land back. Um, I think Janice would eloquently be able to talk about wanting to share this land in um, equal value. And I, I got to say, we have to start like really dissecting Alberta and going, this was Indian school, uh, this was an Indian residential school, these grounds are sacred and we need to make them uh, as such. And right now I, I went to go to one and it's on private property and the farmer wouldn't let me pass to go to those grounds. So, and, and this is a problem all across Alberta, but also across the country. We need that land back for no other reason to honor those graves. And I can't believe that any farmer would think it's appropriate to just farm over this, this history. Well, but that's because uh, our education system and our political system dehumanizes those lives. That's what it comes down to, right? And I, I have to be honest, I, I knew of the existence of residential schools. I had no ideas of the horrors and I still kind of get a little choked up about it, but I had no ideas about the horrors until as uh, a legal secretary, I worked on files for claimants. I worked on the files of survivors. And to this day, their stories haunt me and terrorize me at night. They wake me up in my sleep. I'm traumatized just from reading what we did to these children. And I can't imagine the trauma the survivors lived with, their families lived with, what their families lived with when their children were abducted and kidnapped from them. And the fact they have to exist in a society, in a province, with a government that won't acknowledge those horrors fully. It's our responsibility as settlers, colonizers, white people, to fight for that recognition on behalf of those children. And people shouldn't have to read the, 
the legal files, people shouldn't have to hear firsthand stories from survivors to get it. What we did was horrific. There is no excusing it. There is no rationalizing it. And until we as white people will accept it, accept that part, that horrific part of what we did historically and work to acknowledge it and to give some dignity back, nothing is going to change. And I really hope that white people, especially colonizers, settlers, understand that this is our responsibility. This is what we owe. This is our dues. And we have to do a better job of putting the right foot forward and making it right. Reconciliation is about more than saying we recognize we're on Treaty 6 land. And if you think that's enough when you say it, you're not doing the work. Yeah. Um, And the foundation laid out from the Indian Residential School continues today. So our children are still being apprehended and we are still living this ongoing genocide as a result of the foundation of that. So, you know, there's a bigger picture there too when our own public officials deny genocide. Um, Janice, I I should give you space too. (laughs) Yeah, I just, oh, I'm so glad that you talked about that, Kathleen, because um, after I completed law school and articling, I went to work at a law firm where the sole practice of the law group that I was working in was the residential school claims. And the amount of horror, the stories, I just, I, you know, it really infuriates me when I hear people just say, just get over it, or it couldn't have been that bad. Let's move, let's just move on. How the hell do you move on when there were policies and laws intentionally created, intentionally by lawmakers, both federally and provincially, to kill off Indigenous peoples, to kill off Indigenous peoples. And the mindset of people that carry that thinking, it still permeates today. And that is what feeds into the racism and the stereotyping that literally kills people like it's i i'm exhausted of having to defend protect justify against the you know legislation policies that are racist or divisive or whatever you know whatever else and that's when we need allies and non-Indigenous peoples to come in and step in and, and, you know, get in the front and take some of this on because this, you know, to live with having to recover or get over residential schools, to then deal with the trauma and the intergenerational trauma, trying to recover from that, to then having to defend and protect lands and um, oppressive policies, racist policies, and to just live. Imagine, I just always say, I wish somebody would walk a day in our shoes to see the, uh, the struggle, like really. And for those 
for the people, the indigenous peoples that do, you know, make it or whatever, um, it's, it's an everyday struggle. And I think about, you know, my son who's six, I think about all the other children in this world. And I think there has to be a better future for our children. And when I think about hope, I think about our children. I want our children to be able to understand each other, to understand that we're human beings, to understand that we can live together in this country, in these lands, in a way that the original intent of those treaties meant for, for us to learn from each other. You know, our peoples were supposed to learn from settler peoples and vice versa, but so far it's been so one-sided on this agreement where settlers, white people have benefited, have um, imposed learning systems, education, policies, all of these things, onto the lives of Indigenous peoples, and there hasn't been this reciprocal learning, this mutual respect that has taken place. And it's that simple. It's that simple. Mutual respect, mutual learning, live together in harmony, peace and friendship. Like, think about how simple that is, but why is that so difficult to implement?